On Sunday mornings, we've been going through the book of Philippians together. Verse by verse, we left off last time in verse 4, which would have us picking up in verse 5. What I actually want to do this morning, the Lord was putting it on my heart to uh, share communion together this morning on a Sunday morning. Typically, I I tend to kind of like to do communion on a a Wednesday evening or a Sunday night, uh, primarily just because I really think that... uh, communion is meant to be a time where we really just slow down and meditate and and I think Jesus meant what he said when he said remember me and just kind of to pause and to meditate and to take our time and because of that I uh, I just find sometimes it's difficult on a Sunday morning and I don't ever want it to be a, just a liturgical thing where we're just rushing at the end of a service I did that for years and the Lord kind of just changed my heart and I like communion to be a time where we can kind of just uh, slowly go through that time have some additional worship and sing and just let it mean what it's supposed to mean for us um, and for the Lord. So uh, what we're actually going to do next Sunday morning, we'll pick up there in Philippians 2, verse 5, and look at verses 5 down through 11 as we continue to kind of just journey uh, verse by verse uh, through Philippians together. But this morning, what I want to do is just kind of focus our attention actually on the 8th verse in chapter 2. We'll study verse 5 through 11 next Sunday. Uh, But I just want to kind of focus in on verse 8 and just really put our attention upon Jesus uh, himself and who he is and what he's done for us uh, as we prepare our hearts to remember him. And then we'll cut our study a little bit short this morning and I'm going to have Paul come back up and just lead us through some songs and we'll share the elements together. So if you're turned to Philippians 2 verse 8, would you stand together with me out of respect for God's word as I read our passage of scripture? Philippians 2 verse 8 regarding Jesus it says and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross and father we ask this morning as we open the word of God in this time of worship that Lord what you wrote it to speak to us would be exactly what we hear you saying to us this morning that Lord we could rightly divide the word of truth and that your Holy Spirit who inspired it would be our teacher and our instructor that you would prepare us each one to hear what you want to say to us individually right where we're at in our life this morning Lord we ask humbly speak your servants are listening so speak into our lives and bless your word Put your spirit's anointing upon it this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever taken the time to wonder why specifically you were born? You know, it's pretty evident that one generic fact is that human beings are born so that they might live. Uh, and in fact, that's probably as we watch the course of life here on this earth, one of the reasons why from the moment a person's born to the very last days of their life, as human beings, we typically do all we can to do everything possible to help a person stay alive, to experience life. Uh, Now, the reason is because we were born in order to live. We were born to live. However, there is one man in human history who quite honestly was born for a radically different purpose. And that's what sets him apart as unique. That's what makes him superior. 
And of course, we're talking about Jesus because it's important to remember that in the same way that all other human beings are born to live, Jesus was actually born to die. We are born to live, but Jesus, remember, was actually born not to live, but he was born to die. That was the express purpose he came. The primary reason Jesus was born into this earth was so that he might ultimately sacrifice himself in his death upon the cross so that he might bring salvation to all of us who are on this earth. In fact, Jesus' actual, you could call it almost birth announcement when Mary and Joseph were kind of maybe contemplating the, the name of this child. Again, remember when the angel announced to Joseph that Mary was with child and that child was actually the Son of God and the Savior. It tells us that the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, reason being, for he shall save his people from their sins. In other words, Jesus was born to briefly live a sinless life so that ultimately he might then really die a sacrificial death. And that's really what our verse in verse 8 here zeroes in on. The fact of showing us that Jesus came to live. He was born as a human in the body of a man. He came to live as a man so that as a man he might, we'll see, lower himself. So that he might submit himself in obedience and so that ultimately he might sacrifice himself through the death of the cross. Now we'll see next week, Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11, portrays for us the descent of Jesus from his highest elevated status, how he was at the throne of God and on the throne of God there with his Father in heaven, and from this high position in heaven, how Jesus descended to the lowest experience possible on earth, which then, of course, ultimately culminated, as we see, in his supreme exaltation as the one superior to all things. It basically describes, we'll see, how God actually became a man. And God became a man so that he could rescue man from his sinful condition and so that he could reconcile man back to himself in relationship. And that, of course, happened through the life of Jesus. So referring to Jesus in verse 8, we read that he being found in appearance as a man. Jesus being found in appearance as a man. Basically what that is stating for us, it's referring to how Jesus as God added humanity to his deity as he came to earth to dwell among us. In essence, we could say in Jesus, God appeared as man. In Jesus, God showed up and appeared as man and lived among us as a man. Now verses 6 and 7 prior to verse 8 where we're focusing our attention this morning speak really about the divine existence of Jesus in heaven before he ever came down and dwelt for a short season among us upon this earth. How Jesus being the second person of the Trinity has been eternally existent for all time forever and ever and that he dwelt there together with the Father in heaven as God, dwelling together as the Son of God with the Father in heaven, that he has been there forever and ever, and he therefore also, being God, possesses complete equality in all of his divine nature and attributes that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit do. 
And verses 6 and 7 basically point out that existence, that Jesus is God. He has always been God. He's completely equal with the Father in heaven. Yet, in order to reconcile men back to God and suffer properly for sin, Jesus had to, hear me, he had to come to this earth as a man, basically, we could say, to bridge the gap. Hebrews chapter 2 speaks about this. It describes in Hebrews chapter 2 how Jesus partook, it says, of flesh and blood. He had to be made in the likeness of a human being, just like you and I, it says, to make satisfactory payment for the sins of people. So in other words, in order for God, who is just, Romans 3 says, to also be the justifier of those who believe, God, in his justness, though he's a loving God, had to find a just, righteous way to make satisfactory payment for the sins of people, you and I, for human beings. And the way to do that was that God condescended and actually took upon himself flesh and came to live as man being fully God and fully man simultaneously. And we'll talk about this next time. So that he could be in touch with both. So that divinity could be completely in contact with humanity so that there might be a righteous, perfect bridge between the two. So in Jesus, God took on flesh and dwelt among us and we found God appearing as a man. Now verse 8 then speaks to us of what Jesus did as he was found to be living among us as a man. It tells us in this verse, and we'll take notice specifically of, of three things briefly this morning, of as Jesus dwelt among us and he was found to be living among us as a man, three things specifically that he did as a man. First of all, as a man, we see first in verse 8 that Jesus clearly lowered himself. Jesus as a man lowered himself. Verse 8 tells us of Jesus, it says there in those three words, that he humbled himself. He humbled himself. That word, when you look at it, speaks to intentionally make oneself lower. It speaks of descending or stooping down. The idea is to, to give up superior rank or to give up an exalted status so that you might stoop down or condescend to take on a lower position. Again, if you can illustrate in your mind, picture, for example, a, a king, let's say, leaving his throne. And he lives in the, in the palace of the kingdom. He's wealthy. He has a, an incredible status there. And he's living in a castle. And picture this king departing from his throne, leaving his castle, and going out among, let's say, the village and living as a commoner and taking, for example, the job of, let's say, a farmer or a blacksmith. Again, that's the idea of descending from this incredibly high status and humbling oneself to go and to take a lower position. Or, or picture, a, let's say, a CEO of, of a, a massive you know, billion-dollar company that has incredible rank and status and, and, and position. And imagine a CEO stepping off of that platform and letting go of that position and coming instead maybe to take like an entry-level position in the company, let's say as, as one of the janitors cleaning the toilets throughout the bathrooms uh, of the factory. That's the idea here, and, and it's sort of a, a faint illustration. Considering the fact, here's why I say it's a faint illustration, considering the fact Jesus was creator God. Let us never forget, King of kings, Lord of lords, 
for all eternity he's being worshipped around the throne of God in heaven it is quite an understatement would you say quite an understatement to say Jesus humbled himself (laughs) that's quite an understatement to say that that's what he did and take note please if you would that it does not say that Jesus was humbled in the sense that he was forced to be humbled or uh, that somehow by another he was humbled. or It says not that Jesus was humbled, but it says that Jesus humbled himself. Big difference. It's one thing, maybe we've all experienced it, to be humbled, right? Have you ever been humbled before by someone else? Or maybe some circumstance or thing happens that it kind of really it humbles you it's one thing to be humbled it is a completely different thing requires way more and is much harder to humble yourself yet that's what the bible is telling us that jesus did that despite his exalted position jesus chose to lower himself intentionally purposefully jesus made a conscious decision for love's sake to condescend from that high exalted position and to humble himself to stoop down to a lower position and again why all for our sakes all for our sakes jesus humbled himself consider if you would uh, some of the many ways that jesus humbled himself For example, to leave all the brilliance and the glory and the amazing environment of heaven and to leave all of that existence and to come down to this earth, this ball of dirt in a dark world where there's sin and wickedness and pain and problems. That's an incredible uh, demonstration of humbling himself. Consider that Jesus humbled himself and that Jesus came in the form of a man, not an exalted angelic being that jesus came in the form of a man consider that jesus humbled himself and that jesus think about it was born as a child and started as a child as an infant rather than being born as a grown man again if the purpose was to come as a man to die upon the cross and that was the whole goal uh, why not just be born automatically as a grown man at 30 years old and just pretty quickly die on the cross jesus didn't do that I can't think of a more humble thing to do than to come and to start out as an infant, to be born as an infant, to live out through all the stages of childhood development, to have to submit himself to earthly parents, to have to go through the awkward stages of of growing up, to to go through the experience of being a a toddler and to learn what it's like to interact with peers and friends. And, and, And he just, he came and he experienced all of that. Not to mention his birth itself was extremely humble Jesus' birth circumstances we know he he was born basically in in a cave and he was laid in a a bacteria saliva filled uh, feeding trough as his crib he was born into a family that basically was a very low income family if you look at the family he was born into Jesus humbled himself and that he lived his entire life with the stigma of a child being born out of wedlock because not everybody believed this story that miraculously Mary somehow just was pregnant all of a sudden by, by God. I mean, that sounded ludicrous to people in that culture. So he lived his whole life with this stigma of being a child born out of wedlock. Jesus humbled himself in that he learned to practice a trade. He actually came to earth and he learned how to practice a trade, no doubt working in the same field as his father would as a carpenter. Jesus humbled himself in that he waited a long time, 30 years before he ever started his public ministry. He could have started, but he didn't. He humbled himself. 
He learned how to wait and to wait for his timing and to wait for God's time. Jesus humbled himself by experiencing everything human beings experience. Jesus lived in a body of flesh so he knows what it was like to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be tired, to be cold, to be lonely, to be betrayed, to be hurt by people. He experienced all those things for us. To me, one of the greatest ways I think Jesus humbled himself as well is that he selected a pretty unrefined team of servants to help him in ministry. I mean, th think again, here's Jesus. You're about to, to build the church, to launch Christianity. And, 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 and here Jesus assembles a team. You're thinking he would be putting out and looking for resumes of the most refined, religious incredible orators I mean everything possible and he chooses simple fishermen and people like a tax collector who everybody in the society hated and Jesus said alright I'll take you I'll redeem you everybody hates your guts I like you get on my team and he used people in an amazing way that nobody else would have ever given a chance to and he took those to himself as his companions, as his partners in ministry. And to me, one of the greatest ways Jesus humbled himself ultimately was just all the experience, the unjust treatment. Think, he was God living among humanity. He was keeping people's hearts beating and their lungs breathing that he created. And if it wasn't for him sustaining their very breath and their lives, they would die on the spot and yet he would let them ridicule him. Think of how the religious leaders treated him, the antagonism, the mocking, the things that were said to Jesus, the cruelty that he endured, the shame, the spitting, the abuse. Isaiah 50 regarding Jesus tells us of his own thoughts. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Jesus said, I let people do this to me. I let people. It's amazing to really consider how Jesus humbled himself so greatly. And the question really becomes this, why? Why would Jesus lower himself in such a way? Why would he humble himself so greatly as God? I'll tell you, I think one primary reason is this, to connect with people. To connect with people relationally and to connect with people personally. Because Jesus humbled himself the way that he did, he's extremely approachable. Who should feel intimidated when you truly see Jesus for who he is as he came as a man to live among us the way that he did? Who should really feel intimidated coming to Jesus Christ? Who should really in some way struggle with being uncomfortable associating with Jesus. You know, when we think of a human being who maybe they are somebody who they're high-powered, they're wealthy, they're influential, and yet they're gracious enough to be still a very down-to-earth person. We appreciate that. You'd never know that guy, that gal, he, they're so down-to-earth. Well, you want to talk about the extreme to that, that's Jesus. That he would come and make himself so approachable. So that everyone should feel comfortable associating with Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background, where you've been. Listen, Jesus is so relatable. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For Listen, I am gentle and lowly. The idea is lowly, meek again. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. See, sometimes it's really difficult relating with people, but Jesus, as God, came 
And how much more relatable could he have made himself? How much more approachable and available could he have made himself to us to say, look, do you see how approachable I am? Why won't you, that's why he says, why won't you come to me? Come to me. Maybe you're worn out. You're exhausted trying to be who you think you should be. You're exhausted trying to impress everybody else. And, and Jesus says, look, would you just come to me? I'm so down to earth. I'm so, lo- so lowly. I'm, I'm so willing as God to condescend to meet you right where you are, just right where you're at. Just come to me. I'll accept you where you are. And how wonderful to know that our God, because he wants relationship, not being religious, because he wants relationship with you so much, he humbled himself and condescended so much to be so approachable in the hope that you would come to him, that you would come to him. This morning, if you haven't come to him, I encourage you, come to him. Look how much he humbled himself to make himself accessible and available. So Jesus humbled himself. Secondly, as a man, verse 8 shows us that Jesus also, he also submitted himself. Because look what the remainder of the verse says. It tells us that he became obedient. Another word for submissive. He became obedient to the point of death. One translation renders that part of the verse. Jesus lived a life of utter obedience to the point of death. Jesus' obedience to the will of God was so perfect, it was so complete, it literally was carried out his obedience all the way to the extent of death itself. And when we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they reveal to us Jesus' total obedience to the will of his Father. It tells us in John chapter 6 that Jesus declared this, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. His Father's will. Complete obedience. Complete submission. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus actually made this declaration. He said, I always do those things that please my Father. I always do those things that please my Father. I take one look at that again. Jesus is saying that from the reference point of being a man, of being a human being just like you and I, and the estimation of his life. He says, I always do those things that please my Father. I listen to that and I go, whoa. I wish I could say that. I do not always do those things that please my Father in heaven. You know, last evening it was Saturday night and of all nights I have people below me we got the windows open because you know it's been nice weather the air conditioned off and, and, and we have people below us directly below us in the condo we're renting it now and I have a guy down there playing bagpipes loud bagpipes and I wish I could tell you the thoughts in my mind were Father what would please you right now <laughs> I could tell you my, my, my thoughts are in fact I texted one or two to people and I said do you, do you think it would be wrong for a pastor to choke a person Saturday night and preach Sunday morning I said I need counsel man this is I wish I could say I always do the things that please my father but Jesus did always complete obedience complete fulfillment of whatever the desires of his father were remember in his dying breath he's, even in his dying breath not my will but your will be done The New Testament letters tell us that Jesus, as a man, lived a sinless life. That is, Jesus never faltered. He never erred in thought, in word, in deed. Perfection. 
complete obedience. Hebrews 4 and 1 Peter 2 say that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, but he was without sin. It means he never committed sin. As our representative, as a man, that indicates to us that Jesus lived out, hear me, the perfect life of a man in complete obedience to God's holy standards. Jesus, hear this, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's holy law. Meaning that he did what no man has ever done. And he did what no human being can ever do. He never erred. Thought, word, or deed. He lived in a body as a man on our behalf as our representative so that he could become a mediator and he lived the righteous requirement of God's holy standard of perfection for heaven as a holy God. He lived that out for us and perfectly accomplished everything that needed to be done. He carried out the Father's will, this verse says, to the very extent of then laying down his life. His obedience was to the very point of death. He obeyed all the way out to the very point of death itself, surrendering to the death process. Remember, Jesus had power over the death experience. He was God. Jesus had power over the death experience, yet he submitted to the experience of death in order to overcome death's penalty, the wages of sin is death, and in order to overcome death's power. He submitted to it to overcome it. John chapter 10, Jesus declared, I lay my life down that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. See, Please, please never forget, because Jesus submitted the way he did, because Jesus' obedience was so perfect in every way, that means he has accomplished everything necessary to make us as sinful people right in relationship with the Holy God. Because of Jesus' perfect sinless life, we can rest assured now that God is satisfied and that God accepts us by our faith alone. No work we've ever done, no work we have to do, no work that we ever could accomplish or do would be sufficient because we're all sinful. We all miss the mark. So none of us merit or deserve or ever could merit or deserve getting ourselves into heaven in our own good behavior. The standard's too high. But Jesus came as a man and he fulfilled the standard on our behalf so that God says, okay, on Christ's behalf, According to his righteous behavior, I will accept you in your imperfection because you're believing and trusting in his perfect, satisfactory work of a sinless life and a substitutional death. This is what Romans chapter 5 is all about. Let me just read you a brief portion of that before we move on. Romans 5, verse 17 and 19, referring to Adam, the first Father, if you would, representative of the human race. We're all born of the same person of Adam. Referring to Adam... It says this, If by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, the judgment of sin and death, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, Jesus's, the free gift comes to all men. Listen to verse 19. This is key. 
For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. In a sense, when Adam came, the literal Adam bomb, no pun intended there, when Adam came as the first human being and he sinned and he fell, Bible says that sin came through one man and death through sin. And so sin and death has spread to all men. We're born depraved. We're born sinful. We're born separated from God because Adam could not pass on spiritual life. He lost it as a human being. We need to be reconciled to God. What does God do? Another man, the one man, Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, came to earth. He lived out the righteous, perfect life in obedience that was required for God to accept human beings. And now he's, in a sense, built back the bridge that Adam destroyed and ruined between God and man. So the Bible tells us so wonderfully that why one man's disobedience Everybody was made a sinner, but by one man's obedience, many will now be made righteous by trusting in the obedient, sinless life of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that he's done that for us. Praise the Lord. That takes so much stress off. That takes so much stress off of my life to know that I don't have to be perfect because I can't be perfect. I never could be perfect. And God knew that. But he also took care of that. And that means that God is satisfied and can accept me by my faith in Jesus. Hear me, despite my current imperfections still. Are you imperfect this morning? Please say yes. <laughs> but if you have faith in Jesus Christ, God can accept you in the midst of all your imperfections because you're trusting not in yourself and your righteousness to go to heaven. You're trusting in the obedient, righteous life of Jesus Christ. And God can accept you by your faith alone by receiving that gift of Jesus' righteousness. Thirdly and finally, we see that as a man, Jesus also sacrificed himself because it says he became obedient to death. And then the writer says, even the death of the cross. So not only did Jesus experience and embrace death, but the Holy Spirit adds in there, even the death of the cross. We need to remember the death of a cross was the most cruel undignified abominable form of death that any human being could experience in that ancient culture it basically was like in that day the electric chair form of crucifixion today you know you think of the electric chair it's reserved for the most vile of criminals and crucifixion was reserved for the most vile of criminals as a roman citizen you could not be crucified by law because it was such a, an excruciating and such a undignified horrific shameful form of execution publicly and interestingly we read here that that is how Jesus died not only die even the death of the cross the Holy Spirit wants us to remember not just that Jesus died but how Jesus died most of us here probably have some understanding that Jesus came to die in our place, that he was your substitute. He took the punishment for your sins when he died on the cross and shed his blood to make payment necessary. But let us never fail to consider and remember exactly the extent of how Jesus died. Jesus did not get to die a natural death of old age. Jesus did not get to die an accidental death. Jesus chose purposely, consciously, willingly to embrace the most shameful way possible to die for you and I. 
even it says the death of the cross. That's why Hebrews 2 says he endured the cross despising the shame. Jesus Christ chose to die on the cross to personally embrace utter disgrace. He chose to personally die in a way that was the most shameful, disgusting, despised way possible and to experience that himself because there's no extent that Jesus would not go to to save your soul. There's no extent. And as God, not only did he come down and live as a man, but he went to the lowest point possible, even the death of a cross, to say, what do I got to do to convince you that I love you, that you need me, and you should follow me? And, and to demonstrate the love of God in such a way where, listen, no matter how shameful or disgusting we feel, Jesus says, if you knew the shame I experienced, I don't care how shameful and disgusting you are. I've already experienced the worst of shame, the worst of disgusting treatment. Nothing about you makes me uncomfortable. I came to do what I did specifically for you. I love what it tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Jesus, it says, appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, the way in which Jesus dies demonstrates the incredible love of God in such a way whereby we realize he has put away sin. It's, it's put away now by the sacrifice of himself. But it was put away and the Holy Spirit wants us to meditate and great to ponder as we celebrate communion together. He wants us to ponder not just that Jesus died, but how he actually died. The extent to which he was willing to go in such a way so that this morning, despite how shameful you may feel of yourself, despite how guilty you may feel of something in your past that you've done, or maybe even something still in your present that you're doing, that Jesus says to us, listen, I've already experienced the most shameful, filthy, vile things. There's no need for you to feel any fear or awkwardness in coming to me at your worst condition because I've already experienced way worse. I have the sin of the whole world on me, Jesus would say. Not just your measure of sin. I had the sin of the whole world upon me and I publicly was humiliated and spit on and disgraced so that no matter how disgraceful a human being may think they are or feel, Jesus says you can freely come. All you have to do is believe. That's why the Bible assures us saying there's one God and one mediator between God and man and it's the man, interesting, the man, Christ Jesus. Fully God, but the one who became a man to bridge that gap for us. Hey, this morning, can I encourage you, when you think about what this verse says and who Jesus is and what he's done, would you not agree with me? He is so worthy of our admiration. He is so worthy of our personal appreciation and in communion, in essence, that's what we do. Because Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Would you pray together with me? Father, thank you for this morning and this time to be together to study your word and to let it speak into our lives. And God, I want to ask by your Holy Spirit for myself, for all those present even here in this room this morning, that you would allow us in this moment, Lord, as we worship and then partake of the elements, to just admire, to consider 
and to deeply appreciate who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. For I ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there was a hymn that was written in the 1700s by Isaac Watts. Let me read you a few of the words of it. It says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast Save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. The air such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all. You know, the Bible tells us as we celebrate communion that we should partake, but it says that we should partake in such a way where we don't do so in an unworthy manner. And please don't understand, that doesn't say that we need to be worthy. Nobody's worthy. But it says we shouldn't partake of the elements of communion in an unworthy manner. That is, our heart attitude should be reverent and appreciative and, and, and personally recognizing what the elements represent. That they are emblems to remind us of the broken body of Jesus, the one who loved us so much he suffered to the extent that he did. And the shed blood of Jesus, which is the only antidote that can cure the problem and disease of sin that's killing every one of us. So communion, I really truly believe, is something for the Christian. It's for the one who truly believes in, in what these elements represent. When we, Lord, I'm remembering you and that what you did was necessary to save me. And I appreciate it. And Lord, thank you. Thank you that though I, I failed in the past, I'm clean and I can still come to you. And Lord, that though I'm still stumbling or struggling, Lord, I, forgive me for what I've been doing. And thank you, Lord, that I can receive your forgiveness afresh and, and approach you in confidence by faith. And, and as a Christian, I encourage you this morning, if you're here and, and there's an area that's not right with the Lord, listen, slow down. And today, in appreciation for the sacrifice Jesus has made, deal with that. Confess it. Acknowledge it for what it is. Stop the excuses. Confess it. Acknowledge it. Whether it's a habit or an attitude in your heart, a practice you've been involved in, today, confess it to the Lord. Repent. Choose to say, Lord, I'm sorry. It needs to stop. And thank you that I'm forgiven by my faith in you and help me to live in a way that would admire and appreciate what you've done in your sacrifice for me. And if you're here this morning and you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to do one of two things. If you're still seeking and you're not certain, you're not sure yet, and you're not ready to repent of your sin and surrender to Jesus and follow him, I would encourage you, sing with us, worship with us, glad you're here. But I would encourage you, according to the authority of God's word, to just refrain from taking communion. Because to partake of it in a way whereby it does not personally mean to you what the Bible says it should mean to you, in a sense, it's almost sort of a mockery. If your heart's in a, to partake of it and saying, Lord, I'm remembering you, when the reality is, is that's not true because you're not submitted to him. It's not personal to you. You've never embraced it for yourself. You've never embraced Jesus for yourself. I would encourage you, just let it pass. Sing with us, worship, we're glad you're here. Or the better option is today right where you're at by simple faith tell Jesus 
I know I'm a sinner, but I believe what you did for me is sufficient. And Jesus, today, would you forgive me? Would you save me? I, as a man, I, as a woman, I need to be saved by you. I believe in what you did dying on the cross and rising again. And Jesus, since you're alive today, would you save me? Forgive me of all my shame and guilt. And Jesus, I want to start following you as my Lord. And pray a simple prayer in faith right where you're at to do that. And then when the elements come, partake of the elements as your first believer's communion and demonstrate publicly, hey, I believe. And that's why I partook.